Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Acts, chapter 17, verse 22 to 25. We're starting a new series today. We're focusing on the attribute of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Pergabus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what do you worship as something unknown? I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in a temple built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. May the Lord richly bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Pray with me. Father, we come before you humbled, cognizant of how creaturely we are before you, our creator, our God, the holy Lord of heaven. And yet, you call us to yourself. You make a way through your son, Jesus, in his life and his death and resurrection, that we might gather here this morning to worship you, to sit before you, to hear a word from you, all of these privileges that we often take for granted each Sunday we gather. Lord, we are reminded right now that it is all by your mercy and grace. It is an extension of your faithfulness and steadfast love to a people who are undeserving. And so as we Now, hear from your word, we ask for your spirit to give us understanding, especially today as we are trying to grasp you, we ask that you give us not just understanding, but application that our lives might be different from having encountered you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We'll turn with me, actually, to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be starting there this morning, Exodus chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible, there is a pew Bible in front of you. You can find it there. As Pastor Fred mentioned, we are beginning a four-part series on the attributes of God. Now, obviously, God has more than just four attributes So, obviously, we're not going to be saying everything that could be said about God. We're going to look specifically at four attributes. We're going to study what theologians have called the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, what's that? What's an incommunicable attribute? Well, it's the opposite of a communicable one. That probably doesn't help many of you. Okay, so what's a communicable attribute? Well, that's an attribute of God that he shares with us. 
A communicable attribute is an attribute that we share with God as creatures made in his image. So the best example that people often give is love. Love is a good example because we all know God is love, and yet that's not something that is unique to him or foreign to us. We too can love and be loved. Love is a shared attribute. The creator communicates it to creatures like us. The same could be said about his wisdom, his justice, his mercy, his goodness. All right, so what makes an attribute of God incommunicable? Well, it would be the opposite. It would be an attribute that is unique to God and that is largely foreign to us. It's an attribute that we don't share. It's one that he does not communicate to us. Now, in theology, there are four attributes of God that have been classically defined as incommunicable. They are, as listed, God's independence, his eternality, his omnipresence, and his immutability. Now, if you have no idea what those words mean, that's okay. That's why we want to teach them to you over the course of the next four weeks. Now, if you uh, worship here with us regularly, you know that our practice is to preach through select passages of Scripture. Often we just go straight through consecutively through a book of the Bible. But, you know, every once in a while, we like to focus on a particular subject, a subject like the attributes of God. And the goal is not just to fill up your mind with, you know, theological information. Now, the, the goal and the hope and the prayer is that we might move your heart with truth. The truth of God as revealed in God's word. And not just that, we pray that the truth will then move you to action. To live differently. To live in accordance to the truth of who God is. But why did we pick this one? Why did we pick the incommunicable attributes of God? Why this subject of all things? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, consider this. If I were to ask you to describe God for me, what are the first things that come to your mind? If I ask you, just tell me about God. Who is this God? What would you naturally think of first? Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you first think of his love or his patience or his goodness, his gentleness. And don't get me wrong, it is good and right for you to think of those things. But I think it's because our natural bent is to focus on his communicable attributes that there's a tendency to forget how wholly different God is compared to us. I think there's a temptation to see our difference with God only in quantitative terms. And so we see ourselves as creatures made in his image, and we think, well, we must be microscopic miniature versions of him. So he's the sun, and we're the candle. Or he's the ocean, and we're the raindrop. Or he's the arctic, and we're the snowflake. Now, That kind of imagery is helpful, that is, to communicate the immensity of God compared to us. But it can also be misleading, because the difference between God's being and our being is more than just a difference in degree. It's a difference in nature. 
God's being is qualitatively different than ours. I think, I think we tend to think about God like we would imagine an ant, a little ant, would think about us. You know, to an ant, humans are godlike. We are astronomically bigger than them. We could crush them at our whim. We're like gods to them. But then again, we're not. I mean, yes, we are much bigger, but we're still made of the same stuff, the same stuff of the earth. And yes, we could crush them. We could crush an ant at our whim, but none of us can create an ant. So I think the better image is to compare God with us as the difference between Shakespeare and Macbeth. And Shakespeare, and really any one of his characters. Because you think about it, Shakespeare and Macbeth differ not in degree, but in nature. One solely created the other. Yes, I know they're interconnected, but they're not interdependent. Macbeth depends on Shakespeare to exist. But Shakespeare does not depend on Macbeth. He doesn't need Macbeth. Shakespeare alone is author, and everyone else is character. And likewise, God alone is creator, and everyone else is a creature. So we mustn't neglect or or downplay this important distinction, or else we might come away with too low of a view of God. I really like what Martin Luther once told a theological opponent. He said, your thoughts of God are far too human. What an indictment. Against us, that is. Because I think our thoughts of God are often far too human. We view him Just as a bigger, better, stronger, wiser, kinder, gentler version of ourselves. But God is so much more. God is something else. He's in a class of his own. So we need a corrective. And we get that by focusing our eyes and our hearts and our praise on the incommunicable attributes of God. That which is unique to him alone. Now today we begin with God's independence. Let me give you a roadmap of where we're going. First, I'm going to define for us what we mean by God's independence. And secondly, I'm going to demonstrate this attribute in the scriptures. And thirdly, I'm going to draw out some implications of this truth for our lives. If you're following along, there's an outline in your bulletin. Let me begin by defining terms for us. What do we mean when we say God is independent? Well, we basically mean this. God is independent in that he does not need us either to exist or to persist. That is to continue to sustain himself. He doesn't need us to exist or to persist. Now, to guard against a misunderstanding, we're going to have to add a qualifier. And so we're going to have to add this. And yet he still wants us and loves us. So that's what I mean by God being independent. Now the theologians of old used to call this attribute God's aseity. God's aseity. That's the 
SAT word for the day, so students, you know, take notes. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That word is Latin meaning from himself. So what aseity is trying to say is that God has life in himself. No one or no thing had to give him life or anything else. He has it all in himself. He has aseity. Now, there are two aspects to God's aseity, to God's independence, his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. Self-existence means God needs nothing else or no one else to exist. And his self-sufficiency means that he needs nothing nothing else or no one else for any other reason. So he doesn't need us to exist or really for anything else. So when we stress the first aspect We're saying that God was never created. He he is dependent on no one or no thing for uh, for his existence. He is self-existent. Now imagine with me a conversation between two little kindergartners. One sees a, a little tree sapling growing in the middle of his backyard, which wasn't there a week ago. And so he asked his friend, who made this little tree? Where did it come from? And his friend says, well, the acorn made it. Okay, well, then where did the acorn come from? Who made the acorn? Well, the the oak tree made it. Okay, well, who made the oak tree? Um, God made it. Okay, well, then who made God? I think that's a natural question that most little children... Ask eventually, who made God? Where did he come from? A a child innately knows that everything around him came from something, not itself. And so he just naturally extends that logic upward to God. And he's reasoning correctly based on human categories. You see here, if you're a wise parent... You're going to need to offer your child a new category that your child is probably going to be unfamiliar with. You need to introduce what we call an uncaused cause. An uncaused cause. A self-existent being. A being who never needed to be made in the first place. A being who always was, always is, and always will be. A first cause, who has no cause, no origin. Now, I know at first glance that appears to contradict our childlike instincts to look for and to expect a cause or an origin to all things. I mean, doesn't everything have a cause? Well, actually, no. Every effect has a cause. That's the law of cause and effect, right? But there's nothing irrational about an uncaused cause. It doesn't contradict any law of logic. Now, an uncaused effect would. Now, that's irrational. You shouldn't believe in that. But that's not how we're describing God here. He is an uncaused cause, and there's nothing irrational about it. It's just in a category beyond human terms. And well, it should be, because God should not be limited to just human terms and categories. 
So if you're thinking of anything that has a cause, anything that has an origin, then you're not thinking about God. You're thinking about something that he made. Likewise, if you're thinking of anything with needs, anything that lacks, anything that is incomplete without something or someone else, then you're also not thinking about God. You're thinking about something within his creation. See, God is not only self-existent, he's also self-sufficient. God draws from within himself an unending supply of power and wisdom and glory and joy and so on and so forth. He is not dependent upon us or anything else for these things. Listen to A.W. Tozer on God's self-sufficiency. He writes this, to admit, to admit the existence of needs in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. To use the word need only makes sense if you're talking about us as creatures. But properly speaking, the creator doesn't need anything. Now, I know I have to tread very carefully here because I don't want to give you a distorted image of God. Uh, when I describe him as independent, please don't interpret that to mean that God is far and removed. You know, I don't want you to think that this means, means that God could care less about you because he doesn't need you. No, that's the God of the deist. But the God of the Bible Yes, he is independent. Yes, he is self-sufficient. But that doesn't mean that he's cold and distant and far removed. I know I'm going to have to show you that in the scriptures. So let me turn there now to show you biblically these two aspects of God's independence. So let's first consider his self-existence. And let's look at the one passage in scripture where God reveals to us his very nature as he reveals for the first time his very name. Look with me at Exodus chapter 3. Now here we read of how Moses was leading a flock of sheep one day when he sees a burning bush that's not being consumed by the flames. And so he approaches to see this great sight as we read in verse 4. Verse 4, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then God goes on to send Moses on a mission back to Egypt to stand before Pharaoh, who at the time was the most powerful man on earth. And he was to demand of Pharaoh the release of the Israelites, God's people. Now, understandably, Moses is intimidated at this point. He, he feels grossly underqualified for this mission. 
So look at verse 11 with me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Okay, so here Moses is projecting his self-doubt onto the very people that he is called to deliver. He's very conscious of his lack of qualifications, and he fears that the people are going to see it too, that they're going to see right through him. They're going to ask him, who sent you? What's his name? And you have to understand, in ancient cultures, a name was more than just a form of identity. A person's name communicated something about that person's character or essence. And so you, you would learn attributes about me through my name. So Moses, here he is certain that the Israelites are going to ask for a name. They're going to want to know more about whoever it is. They're going to want to know more about his attributes of this, of this someone who is sending him on this, 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 this mission with this too-good-to-be-true promise of deliverance. Who is this? What's his name? And so God answers in verse 14. God said to Moses, here it is, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now that clause there, I am who I am. It could also be translated as I am what I am or I am, I will be who I will be. You know, either way, however you want to translate it, I I don't think that is the name of God itself. I I think it's it's a comment before God gives his name in the second half of verse 14, where he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So God's name is I am. That's his name. Now, in modern times, we translated that as Yahweh. Or Jehovah. You probably heard of both. Now, in most English translations of the Bible, if you see the word Lord in all caps, like you probably do as you're looking at your, your translation, you know there that it's a reference to Yahweh, or quite literally, to I am. Now, the question is, what does the name I am tell us about God? As we just said, you learn something about a person's character or essence through their name. So what do we learn about God through the name I am? Well, I am is a conjugate of the Hebrew verb to be. So who am I, God says? Well, I just am. He just is. Remember, we said God has being in himself He is self-existent. And to then say, I am who I am, is to suggest that his essence and his character is self-determined. I am who I am. I'm not measured against anyone or anything. In other words, God is independent. He has a saity. 
But we're not like that. We are not like that at all. We are dependent. We are totally dependent. I mean, just think about it. Do you realize just how fragile your life is? Your life could be snuffed out just like that. I think all the recent news reports about airplane crashes and train derailments and church bus accidents, they are extremely tragic. And yet they also serve as a rude awakening to remind us of how much we take for granted. If one oncoming vehicle were to veer into your lane, if one elevator cable were to snap, if one bridge or overpass were to collapse, it would be over for us, just like that. Now, I know that's depressing. Yes, that's a morbid thought. No, you should not be thinking about that all the time. But I do think it's good, every once in a while, to be reminded of how dependent we are on so many variables and factors being just right for our survival. God's mercy and grace being ultimate, the ultimate factor there. But God is not like that. God is different. God is independent. He doesn't have to worry about all the variables being just right because he holds all the variables in his hands. He controls all of them. So he simply, by his nature, exists. He simply is. That's what we mean by being self-existent. That's what it means to be God. He just is. Now let me show you where the Bible describes God as self-sufficient. Now turn with me here to Acts chapter 17, the passage that we read earlier. Now before we read this text again, let me ask you a rather deep question. One of those deep questions of life. Why did God create you? Why did God create me? Why did he create any of us? Now, if you were to ask that question to an ancient Greek, someone who believed in Zeus and the whole pantheon of gods and goddesses, you're going to get some sort of answer that basically suggests that the gods need us. They created us because they need us. They need humanity. They need us to supply them with sacrifices or to offer up our prayers or to volunteer our service to them. They need us. Now, this was perfectly illustrated in the recent Clash of the Titan movies. If you've seen any of those movies, you know that the central plot line is about how the gods are growing weaker because humanity no longer believes in them. And therefore, they're no longer praying to the gods. And we're told that man's prayers feed the gods' immortality. In other words, they need you. They need you to believe in them. Well, in Acts 17, Paul begins to preach to people who believe such things. He's in Athens, and that's the cultural and religious center of ancient Greece. And in those days, what we know as Greek mythology was viewed as Greek reality. They actually believed 
these things. And so Paul, he sees this altar that is dedicated to the unknown God, and he sees this as the perfect opportunity to make him known, to proclaim who this God is. All right, so where does he begin? He's about to describe God for people. What attribute does he start with? God's love? God's mercy? God's kindness? Nope. He goes straight to the incommunicable attributes of God. Specifically, he starts by describing God's independence, his self-sufficiency. So look at verse 24 with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So unlike the gods and goddesses of ancient Greece, Yahweh doesn't need us to serve him. He doesn't need anything, Paul says. Well, as one theologian puts it, God is worshipped by human hands. But these are hands that are lifted high in thanksgiving and praise. They're not hands being used to serve God or to supply his needs as if he had any. No, God has life in himself. We're the ones who have needs. And God is the one who fills up those needs with life and breath and everything, Paul says. But if God has no need needs of us either to exist or to persist, if he is completely self-existent and completely self-sufficient, then why did God create us in the first place? Why did he do it? I can see why. Some would assume that he must have been needy of something, of company, or of an audience. Otherwise, why go through all the trouble of creating if you were perfectly sufficient in yourself? Well, to answer that, we're going to have to dig deeper. Deeper beyond just the attributes of God to the very nature of God himself. As one God who eternally exists in a community of three. I'm talking about the Trinity here. See, Christians believe that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been living in community for all eternity with perfect love and communion. So that means the fellowship that they share within the Godhead is infinitely sweeter than any fellowship that we can offer God through a relationship with Him. And the glory that each person of the Godhead mutually reciprocates to each other is infinitely greater than the glory that we give Him in even the highest form of our praise. So what that means is that God has everything He needs within the Godhead. Now, with that understanding of what it means for God to be a trinity, theologian Daniel Fuller would answer our question like this. Why did an absolutely independent God create us? It's simple. Because of love. It's because of love. Now, I know 
if the answer is love, it still kind of sounds as if God has some needs, as if he was lonely and looking for relationships. He, he was looking for someone to love and be loved. Well, this is where Fuller differentiates between what he calls need love and benevolent love. Need love and benevolent love. He says that need love is the kind of love that is given out of a desire to fill up an emptiness, a need within you by the object of your love. But benevolent love is different. It's the kind of love that is motivated not out of an emptiness, but out of a fullness. It's the kind of love that says, I'm full, I'm content, I'm happy, so I just want you to be happy. I'm not loving you because I need to use you to fill me up. I'm loving you just because. That's benevolent love. And so Fuller's point is that God, in creating us, was not motivated by a need for something that he doesn't already have. Rather, He creates us out of a delight in displaying to us what he already possesses. And so Fuller says, the moment we understand that all of God's need love was met in being a trinity, then we see that he is free to act towards us, his creation, solely in terms of the freedom of a benevolent love. And then he goes on to give this great illustration. He says, if God created you out of a need love, it would be like God inviting you over for a banquet only to find out that you're the main course. But Yahweh God, he's not like that. He doesn't do that. He invites you out of benevolent love. He sits you at his head table. He spreads a banquet before you because he wants you to enjoy the feast with him. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And that's the God that we know who created us. He's not trying to use you or to manipulate you for selfish gains because, frankly, he doesn't need you. I know that that makes it sound like we're insignificant to God. I I know it it makes us feel like little ants and God is is like the human who just kind of walks over us, just passes over us, not even noticing us, not even recognizing that we exist. I know that's what it feels like. I know that feels very discouraging. But again, like I said earlier, the better image is to see ourselves as characters in God's story. And as author, yeah, he doesn't really need us. But he still wants us in his story. And of course, we are significant to him. Because he's the one who thought us up. He is the one who knows everything about us. He knows our backstory. He knows our current predicament. He knows how our story is going to go. He's the author. I hope you're starting to see that true benevolent love, the kind of love I know you want out of God, can only come from a God like that. The false gods of this world, they're only benevolent to you because they need you. They're empty and they're trying to fill up their need love with you. But because God satisfies his need love within his own Trinitarian existence, he alone, he alone is able to freely love you with true benevolence. 
an absolutely independent God who doesn't need you to exist or to persist is, in fact, the most loving, most benevolent God that you could ever imagine. He's the best God you can imagine. You know what? We don't have to leave it up to just the imagination. Because such a God does exist. And he's here with us today. This God is with us in this gathering. You are in the presence of a self-existent, self-sufficient, absolutely independent, supreme being. So how are you going to respond? I believe there are two proper responses, two implications to be drawn. First, we ought to fall on our face before this God. Throughout scripture, the consistent response when anyone encountered the great I am was to fall flat on your face. Isaiah fell down before I am and he said, I am undone. Ezekiel, he said he fell face down when he saw God. John records in the book of Revelation that he fell at I am's feet as though dead. Why did they react that way? That's because each one of them was cognizant of who they were when they came before the presence of who God is. Not only did they realize they were mere creatures, they realized they were wretched sinners. You see, sin manifests itself in different ways in each of our lives. But you know, really, it just boils down to one thing. Treason. It's treason. At the root of every act of sin is a dependent human being who is created to worship around the throne of God, instead setting up our own throne, sitting on it, and from that elevated position declaring, I am. I am. That's the essence of our sin. Declaring independence from God, spitting in God's face and saying, no, I am who I am. I determine my own existence. I am the author of my own story. That's the sin of the garden, trying to supplant God and to take his place. But our declaration of independence, that's nothing short of a cosmic treason. And here is where the other attributes of God get scary. Because this independent God, he's also a just God who will not let our treason go unpunished. And since God doesn't need anything from us, oh man, we are big trouble. Because that means there's nothing that we can give to God in exchange for mercy. What are you going to give him? You're going to give him more worship? Are you going to give him more prayers, more devotion, more service? He doesn't need any of that. There's nothing that you can do or give to curry his favor. You can't barter with God. You don't have anything to barter with God. Now, if God were merely independent, let's face it, we're doomed. But let's thank God That God is more than that. He has more attributes. Thank God in particular for his kindness and his grace. 
And so the first response to all of this is to fall on your face. But the second is to repent and receive his grace. Fall on your face, but then repent and receive his grace. Remember Paul, he started preaching in Athens by focusing on God's self-sufficiency, on God's aseity. But notice how he ends his sermon in verse 30, focusing on a call to repentance. You see, repentance of sin is the proper response. Really, it's the only response when you finally grasp who God is as the absolutely independent being of the universe. So look at verses 30 to 31. It says here, The times of of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has anointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And here the apostle preaches the good news of Christianity. That the very God who does not need you for anything, the God who does not need to be in a relationship with you, chose out of the freedom of his benevolent love to love you and to pursue a relationship with you. He's the independent author, and you would expect then for him to be distant and removed, but yet in love, he wrote himself into the story. God became man. And this appointed man was named Jesus. The good news is that the one who owes you nothing, the one who could never be put in your debt, graciously paid the debt of your sin by sending Jesus to die on the cross in your place. He paid the punishment of your treason. And the one who is not obligated to give you anything, has graciously given you the assurance of his love and mercy by raising this Jesus from the dead. And now, this self-existent, self-sufficient, absolutely independent, supreme being calls for you to repent, to turn from your sins, and to freely receive his grace by trusting in Jesus And all that Jesus has done for you. Friends, he doesn't need anything from us. But he sure is worthy of everything within us. Father, thank you for revealing more of yourself to us. I know we've only scratched the surface, Lord. You are infinitely greater and higher than we could ever think or imagine. And so, Lord, I pray that you will continually teach us of more of you, that we might live in accordance to your truth. In your son's name we pray. Amen.